Welcome to The Sustainable Life. It's Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Oliver Berkman. Oliver, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, I'm, I'm very mildly under the weather today, but it's a one-day thing, I think, so I'm, I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm very well, and uh, I'm, I'm feeling great because we had a lot, a lot of rain lately, and that meant I couldn't charge. I was just up on the roof and getting some vitamin D for myself and charging the battery so I can actually have some cooked food for the first time in a couple of days. Oh, right. You're, uh, you're completely dependent on... Uh... Well, you're choosing to be completely dependent on uh, on solar energy there. Yeah, well, well, we all are actually. I mean, there's a little Ultimately, bit of geothermal, hundred yeah. percent. Yes, <laughs> geothermal. A bit you of hate nuclear. to break it to me, yeah. but <laughs> uh, right. yeah, I'm ahead of the curve on what a lot of people are going to be doing very soon. I believe, and I hope. Right now, we've emailed a bit setting this up, and you've indicated that maybe you haven't done as much. So I want to cover what we talked about, about your uh, walking in the Moors, was it? Not Moors, is it? Yeah, yeah, the North York Moors. Moors. We, we, yeah, we, this was this this was this step-by-step process you took me through of finding things that intrinsically motivated me that could be a yeah, and harness so rather than, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that, and there's also the parallel between your work and my work that I want to explore of, um, I think when when... When I read your book, I felt, oh, this is a lot of what I have. Because I was thinking, I'd come to this of, I can't visit everywhere in the world. I can't fly all over. There's too many places and too many people that I want to see. Right. If I think of all the ones that I'm missing, it's not going to work for that. My life doesn't, that doesn't help my life. Yeah. If I instead think of where I enjoy where I am maximally, then everywhere I go is, is great, even if it's a bike ride not far away. Yeah. And it took me to, and, and then our last conversation, I think we, hit on the commonalities there. And I think that there's a big parallel between your, what you write about time, I write about energy. Mm-hmm. So, and from a, for a physicist, that's like time and energy. These are like, we love talking about these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense to me. That makes sense. So I want to explore that, but maybe second. And I propose first talking about, uh, you, before talking about what you committed to doing, do you remember when I asked you what the environment meant, what you what you talked about? Uh, I, I remember broadly about talking about what it, what it, um, how it made me feel to be out in the landscape where we live here and what that meant to me. Um, I remember, I don't know, remember the details of that, but I was, what was struck me about it and made me so interested in the conversation was, uh, maybe this is old hat to you at this point, but was the fact that, that I was exploring things that were, motivating to me intrinsically rather than uh, though it was not a conversation about uh, shoulds and uh, sort of laying a heavy ethical trip on oneself. I'm glad you said that. Can you expand on what you just said there about the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic and what that meant to you and why one, what that means, how that feels to you differently and also why you picked up on that? Because most people don't, I have to tell them. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, this, I think, is partly to do with our thinking being along, running along similar tracks, but, but I'm more and more in the context of my day-to-day work and all sorts of other things, I come to distrust any form of uh, attempt at transformation, behavior change, uh, just getting things done that relies on kind of uh, using one's will or perhaps one's intellect or something to push oneself right to sort of to sort of make it happen now i don't think that this is an argument in favor of just purely kind of letting life happen to you and kicking back and doing nothing but it is an argument 
in favor of really trying to, it has been for me anyway, really trying to treat the question of like what I feel like doing and what I want to do and what gives me pleasure as a, as a real thing. I, I, it's not an argument for hedonism, but as an argument for saying like, like this is a real force in my life. What I, what I would like to do with a given moment of time. And it's strange. It's got lots of reasons why we do it, I think, and why I do it, but it's rather strange to set up your whole kind of, uh, structure of doing things in the world in opposition to that instead of at least sometimes trying to work with it so prior to our conversation about care for the physical natural environment i i was already deep in the notion of of trying to think more seriously about like ways of working that that are, that include the question like what do i want to do <laughs> what would what would be fun in a deep sense of the word fun, what would be, you know, what would bring me joy? Because it's like, why would you disdain that source of motivation uh, if there are things you you, you want to do? You know? So um, that was what I was picking up on there. Now, as we are about to discuss, I assume, uh, it didn't, in the narrowest sense of the term, work <laughs> mm-hmm. in terms of my uh, uh, following through on my commitment, although I strongly believe that I will. Um, but anyway, it clearly is in my life in general a much more effective way of kind of both you know doing interesting things but also meeting obligations and keeping life ticking over and and making sure my responsibilities to other people are fulfilled right it really in the end you do have to pay attention to what you actually like to do it's not something to be uh, ignored yeah i think there's two things that i contrast with doing things one likes to do. One is that I, something that I cannot stand in sustainability is what I call CCCSC, my little, not very useful acronym, but it's... <laughs> it needs some vowels in there, right? It's convincing, cajoling, coercing, seeking compliance is right. overwhelming what I see. And if I, if someone tries to convince me of something, generally it reinforces my arguments counter to it. The Vince in Convince is Vanquish. It's the same root. And it tells me if I, it, you wouldn't try to convince me if I wanted to do it. Right. So obviously I don't want to do it. You know I don't want to do it. You probably don't want to do it. That's why you know the argument so well. And I think that it's, it leads people, I, I may get compliance if I coerce someone into doing something, but I will likely reinforce the resistance that is the deeper issue. Right. And this is, yes, this is re- where this, where this kind of surprising thought is a bit less surprising, I think, is in it's a sort of something close to received wisdom in certain parts of the literature on parenting, right? It's like if you if th- there's an argument, which I think at least in some cases applies, that if you make doing the responsible thing around the house, doing your chores, being tidy, being well behaved, if you make all these things uh that they result in certain kinds of reward. You just reinforce the idea that they're the kind of thing you would only do if you were being offered that reward. And that's a similar, it's a similar kind of idea, isn't it? It's like we've put it into a kind of a frame of having to force it to happen somehow. And that makes it, there's too much, there's too much force involved in this, in this situation, basically in convincing and yeah, hectoring people and all the rest of it. Yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, one of the ways I put it is in 
with my math background. Like I work on the y-intercept. No, I work on the slope more than the y-intercept. Because to me, if I get someone through argument or debate or controlling to say avoid straws, right, they might avoid straws, but that that moves them. But I'd rather evoke and unleash that they don't want to pollute in the first place for their own reasons, and then they'll get there eventually. Right. Absolutely. And if they happen to be somebody who in some deep, deep way doesn't actually give a shit about any of this, mm -hmm. then... I got to move on to the next you're, person. You're best moving on. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's another, another thing that it makes me think of is that I don't know how much you've worked to study systems theory or systems thinking, but one of the questions that I remember one of the books, I think it was Thinking in Systems by Donella Meadows. Maybe it was Peter Senge's fifth discipline, but one of them said, how do you know when you're in a system? How do you know when you're not just acting for your own reasons? But, and it said, if you feel compelled to do something, that's generally a sign that you're in a system. And I feel like we're many, we're often compelled to do things that we don't really want to do, but we're supposed to, we have to. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. I feel like in my life, and maybe this is partly a function of a kind of socioeconomic privilege, but the, uh, the, in my life, the big drama there is when, is that the person ordering me about is me. Uh, and that's been the sort of approach to productivity that I've gradually become deeply disillusioned by but it but it does have a parallel obviously to you know anyone who finds themselves in a situation where it's social pressures or tyrannical bosses or um you know faceless bureaucratic systems that are doing the compelling but yeah i totally agree and also feeling like if you're going to hang out with someone going to the mall that's like a system in which we've removed the parks and you know, just shopping is a way, retail therapy, they call it. Yes. Or just sitting down, getting home and watching TV. And that's the way to relax. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like, so. I don't think people are like, you know what I want to do with my life? I want to watch a lot of TV. And yet we do. No, no. Right. It's, it's to do with constraining the, yeah, it's to do with sort of constraining the option set that seems to be available to us and then saying, you know, which of these is the most fun. But by that point, the definition of fun has been pretty degraded. So these were my reactions to what you were saying about um, wanting to do things because I want to do them. And I don't think, I think there's a lot less of that than there could be. I think that's part of the reason you're pointing that out. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think, um, I mean, it, it just seems like it's a big energy in everybody. So like, why not try to work with it? So then, all right, so we evoked feelings of motivation to do things in the environment and you committed to something. Can you remember, can you remind us what you committed to? Yeah, I committed to getting in touch with the National Park Authority around here that uh, runs volunteering opportunities for local people in maintaining the, uh, I mean, literally maintaining some of the moorland and also sort of uh, various other kinds of work related to the care and stewardship of the, of the moorland here. And how did it go? <laughs> I have not done it. Um, now I have lots of brilliant excuses for why I haven't done it. And I think it'd be maybe not interesting for me to uh, list them interminably, but to at least to think about them, uh, critically assess them. Uh, and I have looked up what the, what the different kinds of opportunities are. And I have um, uh, figured out um, which of these I think I'm going to uh, try to become involved with. And, you know, 
I think I will, actually. Uh, that might sound self-serving, but um, it's something my wife observes about me in lots of other contexts a lot of the time. is like, I, I move at a slightly different speed with all sorts of these things, but I do do them. Uh, and so, you know, I'm actually fairly confident that I will continue to, that I will deliver on this commitment. But to the extent that it was a commitment to do it by the time we spoke, I didn't. So, all right. So maybe not quite a failure so much as you, um, see, I just finished my last uh, class for the semester teaching at NYU. And maybe instead of giving a student an F, the student has come to me and said, can I get an extension? Mm-hmm. And I always got extensions every time I asked, which led me to ask for a lot of extensions when I was in college myself. Uh, all right. So you, you looked some stuff up and what was that process like? I mean, you, you've done some things. Right. I mean, I didn't not do anything in, re- in response to our conversation. That's certainly mm-hmm. true. Uh it was kind of, um, I mean, I think my initial response to what I looked up was a little daunted because it seemed to me on a quick reading that um, the options here were either sort of very major time commitments that I don't feel able to give or alternatively something that seemed a little bit, um, I don't know, what's the word? Uh a little bit too hobbyist, I suppose, a little bit insufficiently um, making a difference uh, because very sensibly this National Park Authority structures its volunteering opportunities to try to, you know, people who've got, people who've got, uh, you know, multiple days a week to do things versus people who just want to stop in for an hour every couple of weeks. Um, And it seemed slightly to me like I fit into neither category on the other hand i'm completely uh fine with beginning with the more hobbyist type thing and seeing what that's like i'm I, that i will i will sign up for that um i suppose it's possible i might discover that they're oversubscribed or something and uh and it and it'll not work out for reasons that are not to do with my uh procrastination and uh intransigence but so, you know, it was um, there was a sort of slight extra obstacle added there in the sense that I didn't go to the Web page and immediately think, oh, this is so excitingly perfect for me. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Now I'm going to go and do it. And like maybe I would have kept the commitment in a, on, on time if I had uh, if that had been the case. But it doesn't feel like a. It, it didn't feel like an insurmountable roadblock, which things do sometimes. Right. You sort of think, like, oh, I'm going to do this and then like there's some administrative process you've got to go through and you're just like, it's never going to happen. It wasn't like that. Yeah. I've had, I'm first, I appreciate you coming and sharing that it didn't, you didn't do everything that you committed to. Uh, One of the reasons I bring on renowned people is, I mean, the main reason is for their influence. Another reason is that people who are out there in public and have made a name for themselves generally have failed along the way and have generally learned in some way that sharing that, Failure is not, it's not the same meaning as, you know, failing in school. It's because I'm not trying to present a Disney version of, of just do this and we'll ride off into the sunset and everything will be okay. And uh, everyone lives happily ever after. It takes work. It takes, it's a challenge. I've had several guests who have come back 
and said they didn't do it and they didn't do anything. Right. And then I usually do an episode 1.5, which is to revisit that original. Well, it depends on the person, but generally it's revisiting the original meaning of nature and evoke those emotions. And sometimes it's reconstructing a new something to do. Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound like necessary in your case. It sounds like you're going to do it. It's just later. I mean, yeah, I uh, recognize that that sounds like uh, a mighty convenient thing for me to say, but it's uh, but we're talking candidly here. And I think that that is true. It could also be that I'm fooling myself, right? I'm I'm not being dishonest about thinking that I will get around to it soon enough, but um but I might still not. Uh because yeah, I mean what it, what it makes me think of just going back quickly, we can come back around to this, but what you said about sharing experiences of failure. I mean, I'm blown away anytime I mention in the email newsletter that I write uh, and in other things that I do, you know, the ways in which I struggle and often fall off the wagon or fail with respect to the issues of um, relating to time that are the thing I write about the most. Um, Like it's just extraordinary how much people, you know, how, how much sort of connection to the readership is created by, by that. And not in the sense of saying like, Oh, I'm relieved to discover that, that you're terrible too but more in the sense there's something empowering about um, that message. I've always certainly found it very empowering to realize that people who I consider to be, you know, to have it together or something in their lives are, uh, are winging it and succeeding and failing alternatingly just as much as uh, any of the rest of us. And that same, I can sort of pass along a bit of same of that spirit too. Now it seems when I, when I put that into, uh, newsletters uh you know on other topics but so so i don't feel any qualms about that um the sort of uh the less kind of edifying thing to say i suppose is that might be interesting is that like me and you are not in a compulsion based relationship right like you can't do anything if I and it's, so <laughs> if I don't do this, and that's interesting, right? And not particularly doesn't say something particularly great that I therefore apparently didn't do the thing. Um, I've often noticed how there are sort of different people that one works with or interacts with in in professional life who, for different reasons, either do or don't have that kind of um, specific interpersonal sway. So, for example, the editor who I'm working on my next book for who has whose publishing company has already paid me part of what they'll be paying me for that completed book you know it's a little bit different there now i feel a different kind of uh i mean he's great and i have a deep internal motivation to write this book but there's something else going on there too which is that like i, I gotta do it <laughs> or um or heavily renegotiate uh my situation my commitment and so i think that's kind of you know Compulsion is an unpleasant way to go about things, but it does have a sort of brute power as well, um, which wasn't present in this case. Another thing I can't stand about a lot of stuff in the environment and sustainability is, and it holds people back from acting, is if it doesn't scale, if it doesn't fix everything, it's not worth doing. Right. We have to fix everything. And if someone does something for their own reasons... And someone says, that's not worth doing. That undermines 
people acting for their own reasons. And if we were looking at the slope instead of the y-intercept, it undermines people really getting into action. So that really annoys I'm me. I'm interested to ask you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm interested. It's what you're reminding me of here. And I don't know what you think about the work of Charles Eisenstein. I'm sure you're familiar with it. But like, I'm this idea that he writes somewhere about the notion that, um, you know, it can't be the right approach to have an, a view of the the urgency of uh, changing our relationships in the natural environment. That that um, if an environmental campaigner takes a year out to sort of care for a sick elderly relative, that that's like there's no point in doing that because uh, you know you got to save the planet. Um, there's something that we rail against in that notion that this that that person is like doing something pointless. It's clearly not pointless to be providing that benefit. And then of course, there's relatedly it's to do with, you know, just even just within the domain of uh, ecological things, are you going to say that there's no point in a shift at the community garden because, uh, you know, the apocalypse is, is, uh, is due and I don't know how to think about that because I do think that um, quite often the notion that I'm making a difference, if in fact there are going to be these systemic collapses that mean what I'm doing was irrelevant in the scheme of things or something like that, it 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 does seem to rely on a slightly certain kind of almost magical thinking that like, you know, me embodying a certain spirit out in the world is worthwhile regardless of its uh, you know, utilitarian consequences. I don't know what you think about that whole debate. Yeah, that's part of the reasons for the Spodek method and why I hope to have you on a third time when you've gotten to do these things, assuming that's still in the works and it sounds like it is. Yeah, I think so. Then the question of is it worth it or not to do this thing that I like, which might not change the whole world, implies again that I don't want to do it. One of the main things that I've discovered in each people look at me and they're like oh you're so extreme josh unplugging your apartment and unplugging the fridge all that stuff is like such a big deal most people you're blowing them out of the water most people don't want to do stuff like that mm -hmm. well i didn't either at the beginning i didn't anticipate that i'd do those things i first started avoiding packaged food that was my first real step of taking personal responsibility and i thought i wouldn't like it i thought it would be a disaster. I would miss out on the best food around because I'm in New York and food is flown in from all over the world. Right. And the chefs trained for their whole lives to be here. Right. And yet, exactly the areas that I thought would make it worse, my life, it made it better. I thought it'd cost more, but it cost less to cook. I thought it would take more time. It takes less time. I thought, you know, people are always like, oh, but what about people that don't have access? This improves access for others. Certainly more than me shopping at McDonald's or, or getting uh, takeout. Right. So the more people, if, you know, someone who thinks they're not at farmer's markets, the worst thing you can do is not shop at a farmer's market if you have access. Shop at a farmer's market because Whole Foods and all these other stores, they're, they're squeezing them out. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, what I was getting at was that I do these things and I didn't set out to change myself to be completely sustainable. I just took one step mm -hmm. to not pollute as much as I had before and I found out I liked it. So that led me to take the next step. And I liked that more. And that let, led me to take the next step. So in the corporate speak, I say it was a, I stumbled on, in my case, a mindset shift 
And that led me to a process of continual improvement where each step is pretty small compared to the one before, but cumulatively, they really add up. Right. It's the Kaizen approach to... Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of... Yeah. A lot of people stumble on this. And for some reason in, in sustainability, people find it um, distasteful or not distasteful, but they, they, they get angry about it. That, And yet, if everyone found that living sustainably was delightful, as I have, then everyone would do it. Right, right, right. Now this, what this brings up for me is, I mean, it's, I'm thinking about it in other domains because you're the expert in this one and, I'm, and I you know, have not given it very much attention really. But there are lots of contexts in which that is true about some practice or some orientation towards the world after a while. But it takes, depending on the activity, a few minutes, a few hours, or maybe a few months <laughs> of, uh, of it not being enjoyable to get there, right? There's like a hump to get over. Yeah, in this case, I call it hump withdrawal because we're addicted. Right. And you go through withdrawal when you leave the addiction. So it's not, it's not trivial. Right. I spent several months of cooking meant steaming broccoli and putting it over lentils, maybe a little salt and pepper, because I've been cooking everything pa packaged my entire life. So it was a really bland period. Then when I decided to go for a year without flying, that meant estrangement, not estrangement, but like difficulties with families, mm -hmm. with family events and that I couldn't attend, um, work things that I, I was giving talks. You know, I'd walk up on stage and I'd get $10,000 just for showing up mm -hmm. and I couldn't do those far away. So that was a big problem because there's a reason you get $10,000. It's not because... It's like you need to put in that much work to make it happen. It's not like for one hour of being on stage. It's right. for all of what right. goes up into that. Yes. I've had some experience of this. The, the, the rate is uh, less impressive once you divide it among yeah. all the time that it takes effort, attention, and, and upheaval to your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went through withdrawal, and now it's happened. I've done it enough times that I've the, the withdrawal is much faster. And really, I anticipate, like when I unplug the fridge, that set me up for that one. I, I didn't think I'd make it very long. But by the time I tried to unplug in the apartment, I had some sense that there, I was going to discover things that until I tried, I wouldn't find. But when I tried, I would find. And this is big mindset shift. Or one of the mindsets that, I, that I've acquired is people lived without refrigerators for all of human history up until something like 100 years ago. And much of the world still is fine. And America with the average, Americans have, I think, more than a quarter, maybe a third of, of Americans have two refrigerators. I was at a friend's place a little while ago. He's got four refrigerators. <laughs> His food is not more fresh. It's less fresh. Right. And more important than the total energy in the case of a refrigerator is the resilience that if everyone thinks that the food is going to go bad if the fridge goes out for a couple hours, right. we need a, a grid that supplies 99.999 really high uptime. Yeah which requires huge redundancies, which requires huge costs, pollution. Uh, it, it undermines national security because you have all these points of failure. Right, right, right. Whereas if everyone could go for a couple of days, or in my case, several months without power, then suddenly you can decrease the size of the grid and lower costs and taxes and that increase national security. And if people do that with less packaging, Man, I don't know what it's like where you are, but the, the noise of the garbage trucks, I would like that to reduce by 99%. That would be great.
Yeah, yeah, no, it it, it it's really um it, it is I mean I I don't really maybe I doubt what you're saying less than a lot of people would. I my experience, and it's again it's not really that I've tried in this domain, but it's in other domains that are all part and parcel of being human, is that that withdrawal thing is really a big deal. Like and and I think sort of strategies for taking oneself through that that withdrawal, um, whether that's cold turkey or the alternative approaches, you know, are are where it's at. And I, I don't know. I, I want to know the answer. <laughs> Have it, did you feel like you traversed something like that in time management? Yeah. I mean, and I still fall off the wagon to continue the same sort of addiction metaphor. I mean, I'm still definitely in if what you're chasing in the context of time management is a certain kind of control or a feeling of being absolutely on top of everything, a feeling of sort of floating free of the world's responsibility or demand demands on you and your responsibilities and all the rest of it, then, you know, I've seen through that to an extraordinary degree, but I have not left it behind uh, completely. And I find, you know, I've got no experience of, um, uh, 12 step, you know, and I know it's controversial in some quarters, but I find that like that basic notion of thinking like, well, okay, the, on some level, the preference for that kind of control uh, is probably never going to leave me. I'm talking sort of analogously here with the idea of being an alcoholic for life. I don't want to, I know people get offended by comparing substance abuse to sort of compulsive time and other behaviors. But to me, it's a really useful parallel, right? To think like, oh, okay, maybe the deal here is not about a kind of total transformation of what I would be drawn to do, but just a sort of a way of relating to it all in a different way. I don't know. That was a bit of a rambling reply. Did you have role models that changed? Did you develop role models as you clarified what you wanted? Because just to say, to have that feeling of control, I I think a lot of people wouldn't They'd say they want to be more productive, get right. more done, make more money. Yeah. As opposed to that feeling of inner, some inner peace. Did you have role models? I mean, uh, I mean, yes. It's hard to sort of pinpoint extremely specific people. There are certainly f- friends in my life whose sort of attitude to to time and to their unfolding lives has always been a kind of, source of inspiration and at some points bewilderment to me, you know, people who seem to not need <laughs> to go through any of this process in a particular domain are always, uh, are always very, very sort of interesting and useful people to spend time with. And I've found a lot in, uh, you know, Zen Buddhism and various mainly Western Zen teachers that seems to really uh, has really sort of brought a lot of this uh, into 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 focus for me, um, and yeah, I think what it is is about seeing that beneath the desire to be productive is a desire to either feel in control in a certain way or transcend the slip the bonds of uh, finite human life in some way, um, or avoid having to feel negative emotions or all the rest of it. And I can see that now. Like I, I watch sort of, you know, YouTube 
productivity videos by 23 year old guys and i'm like oh i i can totally like uh you know uh armchair psychoanalyze what's really going on with you here um you pass off i take it yeah exactly i mean in some not sometimes sometimes more extreme than my past self sometimes not as extreme but yeah exactly and so but i mean what's been true in that area for me is just that it has been incredible two things that really stand out if i'm talking just about myself little can move to broader topics if you like but like is number one it took a heck of a long time uh the sort of seeing through of that you know the seeing through that compulsion the, the weakening of it has been like a, a multi-year process uh and number two that uh writing for me was completely central to it so the sort of my particular form of creative thing that i do and can't really live without doing uh was the vehicle for sort of thinking these these things through uh and you know for me and i think for a lot of people it follows this pattern where you sort of come to all sorts of intellectual epiphanies rather quickly and then it takes much much longer to live your way into them uh but that's the story when it comes to the the time management case do you feel you've become a role model for others? I mean, that makes me feel very awkward and uh, embarrassed in a way and feels like it's highlighting something specifically British in my in my personality when I have that reaction. But I can't deny it from the email feedback that I get to the newsletter, especially, and, and also to the book. Um, I think that's that's really just undeniable, yeah. Well, I think that in AA, I was just talking to a friend of mine who works in, um, he helps people in using hard drugs through rehab. And he talked about role models being incredibly important. And he's never done any drugs, but a lot of the people who work in the place have. And they. it's a very powerful motivation that he de- he described of having unaddicted oneself to then go back and help others out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, their voices are some of the most important. If I go in there and say, stop using heroin, they're like, you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't know the withdrawal. You don't know the pleasure and the euphoria. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And and more importantly, I think I don't know what problem it was solving for them. So I don't know what what, what questions to ask. I mean, now I'm learning more, but they weren't taking heroin for no reason. Right. 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 There's always an emotional logic. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, yeah. so people who have been through it and gotten out of it are much more valuable, some of the most valuable people, and they're some of the most motivated. And I think people get out of I mean, and they know the person's going to um, relapse, or m- most people are going to relapse at some point, and they're not going to, oh, so did I. Yeah. And so do you feel like going back in and helping people back, or is part of you going back in and like you didn't have to write it. I mean, writing a book, you could write. You, you talked about the writing being valuable, but publishing is another story because editing is not fun. I mean, sometimes it is, but I, I imagine after you've written it, there's a lot of work. Yeah, I mean that's interesting. I, I yeah, I, I actually I find that one the the sort of dredging it out of nothing is is the hard part, and and um and sort of crafting something that's already there is generally. Uh, 
broadly I find quite fun. Then towards the copy editing stage of the book, it does get a little bit, uh, you know, your eyes start swimming and uh, you've been staring at it for too long and figuring out whether there should be a comma uh, in a given sentence or not. Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't think about it explicitly as going and as, as sort of giving back something that I've learned um i think about it a little bit more on an equal footing than that like i think of myself as being maybe like a step ahead of the people i'm talking to not not that i've sort of done a journey which i'm now telling them all about um and that's partly because i think the subject matter itself is about you know imperfection and our inherent limitation and flawedness and it just doesn't make any sense to be saying like you know i figured it all out because that would be that would sort of violate the the whole point um but i do really love uh the part of this that is getting those kind of oh it's like you knew what i was thinking or you've put something into words that i have always felt but hadn't put into words that that kind of reaction is um is absolutely fantastic and um it really does feel like the center of of meaning in in what i'm doing that getting that feedback, getting that confirmation. I think that a lot of people confuse, it's very close to vanity, but it's different. Because I think that we're social, we like to help each other. Right. But it's very it's very easy to do something where I think I'm helping you, but I'm actually doing what I think you want, but it's not what you want. Right, right. So if I get the validation back, that means I actually did it effectively for you. And I think that's, I, I'm speculating evolutionarily that it would be adaptive to feel good when I get confirmation that what I did actually helped you didn't, it wasn't just, I thought I helped you, but I didn't. So I, th- yes, I yes. think there's an emotion there that is not so well known, but that what you're talking about, it feels really good to hear. Yes, you were effective. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, it's, it's also something to do with a, in the AA comparison or the, rehab comparison it's 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 something to do with effectiveness helping somebody in one step on their journey and that's very different from the kind of guru disciple relationship of kind of you know somebody was totally lost and then they somehow touched into the wisdom of somebody else and their life was changed forever like maybe that happens but but the thing that i sort of love about it is how doable it feels right it's like um it's like you needed to find the next step forward in the fog and uh, I was able to provide it. And now we're still both in the fog, but <laughs> but we got a step further, as it were. Yeah, yeah. maybe not just a fog, but uh, living in a culture that pushes, it wants us to get foggy. It's not a natural fog. Right, right, right. Yes, this is not just chance that uh, it's not, it's not just chance that we're in this situation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, going back to role models, the did by any chance did you look at indigenous cultures as role models because they've been huge for me in terms of living sustainably but the, one of the first books that got me learning about them was by a guy named James Sussman who's an anthropologist who lived among the San Bushmen in, in the Kalahari Desert in southern Africa right his next book was called Work oh the first one was called Affluence Without Abundance so showing they, have, they live affluently but without stuff. And that helped me a lot. So I could go into depth on that. But his next book was called Work. 
and how we spend our time and how much more time we how little time we have and how you know the predictions that we're supposed to have 10 hour work weeks or whatever we're supposed to be around now yeah um i think you covered that in your book yeah and how these uh immediate return hunter gather societies they look at, oh man, I had, uh, he talked about this, the San Bushman. I had recently had another guy, Alan Herrera, who lived among the Kogi and did a couple documentaries on them. They live in um, the mountains of Colombia, South America, after the conquistadors killed everyone else. And I said, what did they think of us? His first thing was vicious. They think we're, we're vicious, we're cruel, we're self-centered. The other thing was we work too hard. <laughs> right? We spend way too much time working. Yeah. So did... Did such communities and cultures factor in for you? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, certainly on the edge of things, I wouldn't say that uh, that connecting with that sort of, with those people that are writing about those people uh, has been sort of central, but, you know, it's definitely there. It's there in um, that work on the the so-called original affluent society. Uh, It's there in... The idea that hunting, hunting and gathering is a is a sort of legitimate and maybe superior alternative path to to something to real something that is really affluence. Um, it was there. I mean, there's a slightly sort of there's a sort of uh, political problem here in terms of how far one is writing in a book like the one I wrote about about people in the past and how far one's writing about uh, contemporary indigenous communities. And so I was. I sort of decided in the end that I was going to look at the time through history uh, and not time cross-culturally. And one of the advantages of making a choice there is to avoid the implication that, you know, contemporary indigenous societies are somehow throwbacks from history, which is a famous sort of fallacy of, uh, you know, how this stuff gets tends to get uh, written about in, in a popular way. But I do remember... Um, there was a book we famed very like one of the linchpins of um, modern ethnography, I think, that we studied at university. That that book about the newer by E. E. Evans Pritchard. Do you, do you know about this book? Um, it doesn't ring a bell. Which is about a sub-Saharan one sub-Saharan uh, group, and it's the sort of work of a of a Brit steeped in the colonialist mindset, but finding himself kind of despite his uptight writing style that was standard for the time, finding himself sort of softened by something in the inter- actual interactions with the, with the people he was uh, doing field work among. And there's some line in there about how the newer never hurry because their time is not governed by, tyrannized by clocks in the way that, uh, that it is in England. And there's some line about like, I think that the newer are very fortunate or something, some incredibly like brief and rather understated line where he suggests that actually maybe there's something, uh, there's something really powerful uh, here. So yeah, that's, that's clearly um, that whole general kind of stream of things uh, does definitely provide a kind of, I mean, at the very least a kind of a foil uh, for what, uh, for what, is the standard way of doing things for me in my country. Yeah. The contemporary standard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to me, not just a foil, but uh, a target, a long-term. Uh, see, I don't want to overstate things. I, I, I'm not saying I want to live like a Hadza. Right. But I can adopt a lot of what they do 
And it's, I mean, if they've done it for 10 or 50,000 years, we don't really know, but it's not abstract, uh, absolute failure. It's not putting the whole species at risk. Right. No, no, exactly. Exactly. Something's working. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, going back, you remind me of something, and, and I hope I'm not going in too many different directions, but um, you wrote about, going, you just mentioned the historical perspective and the concept that we are time. You talked about that. Mm. And that part I could sort of see, but I felt like I was looking through a fog. Yeah. But it seemed like it was resonant for you. Yeah. I wonder if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, totally. I mean, it was from, was it Nietzsche or? It was Heidegger. Okay. First of all, I don't think there's anybody who's ever read Heidegger who hasn't felt like they're grasping through a, through a fog. Uh, and it was kind of, I'm not at all sure that I'd give a, any kind of conventional reading of, uh, of Heidegger in a book. And probably separately, but nonetheless, it always has to be said, he was literally a Nazi. Uh, for in terms of being a member of the Nazi party for a decade or so. So, um, you know, a deeply problematic source to be relying on. But he has this very fertile thought that being and time are in some sense the same thing. And after writing the book and after it was published, I found this viewpoint expressed in the work of uh Dogen, founder of the Soto Zen um tradition. Uh and a few people have noticed that it's the same. I, I can't claim that I was the first person to see that they were so they were on the same track. But uh in Dogen's work it's this notion of being time, a hyphenated concept uh, occurs as well. And uh and he wasn't a Nazi, so he's sort of a better source to uh, to rely on. Um but it is this it's a felt I, I think it there may be concrete reasons why it's ultimately impossible to put into words. It might be that, you know, this is something ineffable and that we have to sort of point at it instead of say it. But it starts for me by recognizing what's not true about the idea that time is something that we have a relationship with. We talk about fighting time. We talk about having time talk about wasting time using time all these things imply you know there's me and then there's time and i've got some kind of relationship with it usually a pretty adversarial one maybe maybe not maybe a more peaceful one but of course the whole premise of a relationship implies twoness right i mean you got you have to relationship with something that isn't that isn't you and it's just not quite true right i mean we never we never have any time you have this moment and then the next one and the next one. Uh, we know what we mean by wasting time, uh, but it's not quite the same as wasting some other kind of resource. It just means doing something slightly different in, in a moment and then the next moment and the next moment. So this is a kind of a, you know, a kind of a via negativa approach to what I mean by the idea that you are time. It's like all of these relationships with time sort of crumble once you start to let yourself wonder if if there is any gap between me and and time and then i guess the other way to into it to try to sort of point at this um is that so much of our attempt to control our time and control our lives 
feels when you get into this mindset like an attempt to um, get on top of or outside of or out in front of, you know, all these spatial metaphors, um, the thing that we are. And so it has the quality of, you know, Baron Munchausen pulling himself out of a swamp by by yanking on his own hair. It does just can't be done. We are our lives and to get to the vantage point from which we could control them and sort of be the air traffic controllers of them makes no sense. And then at that point, there can be a kind of a, oh, yeah, right. I am this moment. This moment is me. I'm just the unfolding of of time. So that's what I'm sort of getting at there. It's all a little vague, I know. <laughs> well, it, it has parallels. I mean, I said at the beginning, and what came up from my reading your book is in our conversation before of how what you're saying about time, I feel like I'm saying about energy. Right. Energy has a result of, of, we don't use it up. We end up turning it into unusable energy, heat and other pollution. And then also, I can't help but, I mean, as you're talking, I'm thinking, well, this is going to enter my meditation because I, the consciousness and, and thought and how the mind works seems to be something that comes up in my mind in meditating. It's mm-hmm. like, am I creating these thoughts or where are they coming from? Consciousness, what is, what is consciousness? And time and energy feel like they fit into those, into, we casually talk about them. And I don't know if we can really answer them. I, I, I once saw this Onion article. I presume you read The Onion or know about it? I used to, yeah, yeah. How's it? I, I haven't checked in for a while, but yeah, yeah, go on. Oh, man, it's, it has some really funny stuff still. And um, there was one recently about they do this thing where they, they get voices from like six or three people just comment on some, com- on some issue. Oh, yeah, it's, it's so, been the same three photos for... 20 yeah. years or something, right? Yeah, yeah. And one of the things said um, that some polls showed that college or high school students going to college were considering the abortion rights of the state in where they go to school. And one of the responses was, good luck finding a good school in Massachusetts, New York, or California, <laughs> <laughs> which got me laughing out loud. So, uh, but there's this other one about time. And it was like, it was some article about time. And it just said, it's just this thing that keeps everything from happening at once. Right, and I was like, "That's that's yes. as good a definition as ever as I've ever come across." Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, that that totally. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, and its absurdity is is part of the point, right? It's like, why is that a worse definition of time <laughs> as we experience yeah. it than than anything else? And and thinking about it forces us to reconsider how I mean. I feel most of the time I'm in, a, I'm in these systems that lead me to do certain things and I should use my time wisely. I should, uh, you know, all my, my students, they're all trying to get internships and the internships are for better jobs and the better jobs are for, well, for what? Right. And just, it doesn't take much to, well, you say we can't get out of it to look outside of time into time, but we can at least get out of the system, at least for a moment, and it's worth the effort. Right. Yes. No. Absolutely. And one thing it's making me think is that actually, the maybe this is what you said in different words, but like that that sort of alienation of time from oneself, that notion that there's me and then there's time, uh, 
it seems like it's pretty parallel to the idea that like there's me and then there's nature, right? There's me and then there's the ecosystem. Uh, the notion that uh, that that's it's funny. You're, you, you've been using the word systems mainly to talk about in a pejorative sense or a negative sense, I think certain kinds of economic and cultural system, but like the system that we are all inevitably part of by just being here. Um, like there's a parallel there, right? Between this idea that time is something separate we have to manage and the natural world is something separate we have to sort of get on top of and deal with. I mean, yeah, maybe I'm not saying anything original. I don't know. <laughs> original or not. I mean, I think, well, I, I think you would, correct me if I'm wrong, but you'd be the first to say a lot of what you wrote in your book wasn't, you weren't the first one to do it. You're putting a lot of things together that people have been saying for thousands of years. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And we need to rediscover these things. I mean, well, we don't need to, but there's a reason they stand the test of, of time. Right, right. No, exactly, exactly. Okay, so uh, let's wrap up with if you're going to do, let's get into um, specifics because yes. you. It sounds like you're going to do it. Yeah. And part of me wants to say, could we schedule a time for a third conversation? And part of me wants to say, maybe the um, what's the word? The accountability is is not helping, and I should just say maybe I should just hear from you when you get a chance to do them. I'm inclined to go the first way. I'm inclined to go the second because, um, I mean, maybe you'd say, well, of course you would be. Uh, <laughs> but um, I think this is really interesting, actually, because I'm in a number of different uh, sort of uh, sort of professional relationships that where accountability is sort of the, the order of the day. I'm sort of, you know, in some cases, I sometimes have to explicitly ask agents and editors to like give me a deadline so that mm -hmm. i know that it's yes. uh, so yeah. that i know that it's there because they wouldn't naturally do it and in the case of this you know first of all it's no it's no insult to you and i hope you won't take it as one that like you don't have that sway over me right so that sort of um the the idea that i'm doing it because i've made an agreement to come back and talk um which by the way in principle i'm totally happy to do that with an hour of my time uh, doesn't have the same doesn't quite have the same uh, sort of level of compulsion. Meanwhile, the the negative aspect of this that we began by talking about is still operational, right? The idea that um, the idea that it's now another thing on my to do list that I basically have to do because I promised someone that I would do it. Um, this particular psychodrama of things that I've promised people is very very powerful for me. So I'm actually really interested in the notion of saying, let's not make that plan. And, um, you know, uh, maybe even just to prove myself correct, uh, that will cause me to, um, to, to do it. But I would, I would like to give the intrinsic motivation of this thing, which I really feel like I picked a good thing here in terms of a specific task or commitment, I think. Um, I would like to let that, give that an opportunity to do its work. Well, let's go that way then. And I'll still put on my calendar to email you at some point in the future to check in. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, and we let's pick up here where we left off. I'm, I'm really enjoying and getting value out of this. It's both a philosophical perspective. That's probably not the right word, but still practical. 
that it's not just like, I mean, we're talking about time here, but we could equally well be talking about sustainability, that there's intrinsic value to it. I think it's worth discovering and worth exploring and worth um, dwelling in and indulging in. I, I totally agree. And I think that, I mean, I, I really need to go, but I think that just this sparks a whole other thought. But I think that there is something important in the notion that like, what we're doing in a conversation like this, I think at least partly is clearing away certain inhibiting ideas so that the action that is kind of our natural state in a way can just happen anyway, right? So it's kind of, it's not so much about coming up with intellectual or cognitive strategies for action. It's more about like removing roadblocks, getting out of our own way to use something you come across in meditation circles a lot and finding that actually, you know, getting on with some creative project or going and doing something relevant to sustainability is kind of underneath that frame of, you know, underneath that mesh of inhibiting concepts and ideas was kind of what you wanted to do anyway. I think that's a good cliffhanger to pick up here next time. <laughs> Let's see. Let's see if I walk my talk. <laughs> I look forward to hearing about it. Oliver Berkman, thank you very much. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.